Today's teaching comes from Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. Among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, and I remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. There are a lot of misconceptions about Christianity. I was reading an article this past week that named seven common misconceptions about Christianity. Number one, that it's political. Number two, everyone believes the same thing. Number three, it's illogical and anti-science. You just stick your head in the sand by faith. Number four, it's always fun and happy. The fifth misconception, it solves all your problems. Number six, it causes prosperity. Number seven, the community, the Christian community is morally superior. Now that's seven. I could probably go on with another seven of misconceptions about Christianity. Here's the key. Those don't come out of a vacuum. Those flow out of a distorted view of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a distorted view that's proclaimed by the church, that's proclaimed um, through uh, media, social media, whatever it may be, those misconceptions arise out of a distorted view of the gospel, and it's nothing new. The Apostle Paul in the first century was dealing with the exact same problem. 
misconceptions about Christianity that arose out of a distorted view of the gospel. And he addresses it here to the churches in Galatia. In fact, he writes an entire letter to address a misconception, a distorted view of the gospel. He says, there is no other gospel. There's only one. It is set apart. The question is, what sets it apart? What sets the gospel of Jesus Christ apart? First, Christ alone. One of the unique features of this letter that Paul writes to the Galatians is that after his opening greetings, he doesn't give thanks. Every other letter that Paul writes, after the opening greeting, he gives thanks, even to the Corinthians, right? The Corinthian church that was a divided moral mess. Paul still gives thanks after his opening greeting, but not here to the Galatians. This is the only letter where he doesn't give thanks. In fact, his first words after his opening greetings in verse six is, I am astonished. That's another way of saying, I'm shocked. I can't believe what I'm seeing. You say, well, what was he shocked over? Verse six says they were turning to a different gospel. Verse seven He calls it a distorted gospel. Verse eight, he says, the gospel contrary to the one he had preached to them. What's going on here? Well, it wasn't that they were settling for a less optimal gospel. It wasn't that they were just turning away from what Paul preferred. Okay, he wasn't saying to the Baptist Galatians, I see that you're turning to a more Presbyterian flavored gospel. Or to the Presbyterian Christians, I see you're turning to a more Episcopalian flavored gospel. It's not what Paul's talking about here. He says in verse seven, there is no other gospel. In fact, he says in verse six, you are deserting him who calls you. He's not just saying, hey, you've kind of gone to a different flavor of ice cream. I don't like it. He's saying, you have turned away from the living God. You've abandoned God. And if that doesn't communicate the severity of the problem, verses seven or verses eight and nine do. Look at verse eight. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And then he repeats it again in verse nine. Verse eight is hypothetical, if anyone should. Verse nine is actual. When somebody does, they're doing it right now to you. Okay? Let him be accursed. What does that word accursed mean? It's the Old Testament idea of a person or a thing being set apart or devoted to destruction because it's hateful to God. It is a strong word. It means being under the divine curse. Now, I hope you hear the severity of the problem. It should be having you beg the question right now, what's the problem then? If it's this severe, what is the problem? Look at verse seven. It says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Apparently, there were Jews that were coming up from Jerusalem to follow up on Paul's evangelism. And they were basically saying, you Gentiles need to become Jews in order to become a Christian. 
And to become a Jew, you need to get circumcised because that's what the law of Moses says. So they were basically saying that you need to add the law of Moses, the works of the law of Moses to faith in Jesus Christ. That you have to become a Jew before you become a Christian. Now the reason that Paul says it's a, a distorted gospel is because of the nature of how it came to them. The people that were coming and telling these Gentiles, you have to become Jewish before you become a Christian, these were baptized members of the Christian church. They weren't rejecting Christ. They were affirming to the Galatians, they were affirming the death and resurrection of Christ. Yes, Christ died. Yes, Christ rose from the dead. You just need to get circumcised. You need to become Jewish, to become Christian. And this explains why the Galatians were receiving it. Right? It wasn't rejecting Christ. It was just, hey, yes, death and resurrection of Christ, but let me add one more thing. And to the Galatians, they're going, well, okay. You're, you're you know, baptized Christians. It sounds good. So the problem, to sum up the problem, this false gospel that was being preached to them is this. You have to become a Jew to become a Christian. And to become a Jew, you have to get circumcised. Now, what's this mean for today? What does it mean for today? Let me give you a few examples. To become a Christian, you have to become a Republican. Now, that would be true in the South, but you go to the Northeast and it changes. To become a Christian, you have to be a Democrat. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ plus political party. Or, this is similar, but a little bit different. To become a Christian, you have to be a conservative. Or to become a Christian, you have to be a liberal. Or to become a Christian, you have to be pro-life. Or to become a Christian, you, have, you name the, the, the party value or the conservative or the liberal party value, and suddenly it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, yes, death and resurrection of Christ, plus this set of values. Or to become a Christian, you can't wear certain clothing. Or you can't get a tattoo or you can't get your body pierced in certain areas, or again, the gospel of Jesus Christ plus fashion, or plus what you wear. Or to be a Christian, or to become a Christian, you have to educate your children a certain way. To become a Christian, you have to homeschool. Or to become a Christian, you have to private school. Or to become a Christian, you have to public school. In other words, gospel of Jesus Christ plus education. Ray Ortland asked this question, what might our evangelicalism without the evangel, without Christ, look like? And he says, we'd have to replace the centrality of the gospel with something else. And what's that something else? All that I just named and more. A passionate devotion to a cause which may very well line up with God's design. The problem is the cause replaces the Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ plus a cause. It's Christ plus. And this couldn't be any more relevant right now with our culture wars. Any more relevant. Because there are social media feeds and arguments and conversations on social media 
that are getting at this very thing, where it's the gospel of Jesus Christ plus something. And those that, that watch and hear what's being proclaimed on social media would go, wow, it looks like to become a Christian, you have to trust Christ and do X, or believe this, or join this. The result is an audience that hears Christ plus. Some of you here are investigating the claims of Christ. We are so glad you're here. It's why we exist. Some of you are trying to figure out what Christianity is all about. And you may, some of your skepticism may be due to what you see on social media. When you see Christians arguing over X or Y or Z, and the message that you hear as you read this over and over is that, wow, to become a Christian, I have to trust Christ and become a Republican, become a Democrat, become a conservative, become a liberal, do this, do that. It's the exact message that the Galatians were hearing from these people that were teaching them a false gospel. The message of to become a Christian, you have to become a Jew first, and you have to get circumcised. And if that's the message that you've heard, I am deeply sorrowful for that. And on behalf of Christians and on behalf of the church, I would ask your forgiveness because that's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ alone, not Christ plus, but Christ alone. John Stott says it this way, or said it this way, the church's greatest troublemakers now as then are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, but those inside who try to change the gospel. Another way of saying it, the church's greatest danger is not the anti-gospel on the outside. It's the counterfeit gospel on the inside. So what sets the gospel of Jesus Christ apart? It's that it's Christ alone, number one. Number two, it's grace alone. In verse 13, you'll see Paul begins telling the story of his conversion. And he tells what his life was like before he met Jesus Christ. He says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul was a hard worker. Paul was a high achiever. Paul was a performer. Paul was successful. He was a model student. If they had bumper stickers back then, Paul's parents would have had the bumper sticker that says, my son is an honor roll student in the Judaism training school. Okay? Paul was a high achiever. And in Philippians 3, when he relays out all those accolades, he explains the reason why he worked so hard. Listen to what he says. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. He says, the reason that I was performing and achieving and working hard in Judaism and surpassing everyone, and I was the valedictorian, the reason I did all that is I was trying to earn a righteousness or obtain a righteousness on my own by what I did what we would call a works righteousness. It says that what you, if you, what you do determines if you obtain the righteousness of God. 
and works righteousness is the human paradigm. It is the human paradigm. Let me, let me illustrate it this way, just for illustrative purposes. I want you to imagine that you lean a ladder up against your house. And imagine that God is at the top of the ladder and that you're at the bottom. And the human paradigm says that if you will obey God and follow God's commands, that you will make your way up to God, that you will get to God. So, you read your Bible and pray in the morning. Boom, you go up one notch, one step of the ladder. Uh, you go to community group, you go to a Bible study. Oh, you go up another step of the ladder. But that night, you look at pornography. You drop down one step on the ladder. Uh, that night, you drink too much. You take too many pills. You drop down another step on the ladder. But you turn it around next week. You go to church the following Sunday. You bump up a ladder step. And you tithe. You go up two steps on the ladder now. But then that night, you're talking to a friend on the phone and you begin gossiping about another friend. You drop down a step on the ladder. That Monday morning, you go to work and you start to entertain jealous thoughts in your mind about a coworker. You drop down another step. That's works righteousness. That's the human paradigm that we were born into this world in the midst of. The motto for that, that paradigm, the motto, the, the what's just flashed across the screen is, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel of Jesus Christ is totally, utterly, and completely different. How is it different? What is it? What's the gospel paradigm? Look at verse 15. But when he, this is Paul speaking, but when he, God, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Paul, the one who was attempting to destroy the church of God, the one who was going and arresting Christians and putting them in jail and breathing out murderous threats against followers of Christ was set apart before birth by God. Now when Paul writes in the letter to the Ephesians in chapter one, he says something very similar. He says, you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Set apart, chosen, elect, predestined. Okay, now this is the point where everybody gets nervous. You can chuckle, okay? Get the nervousness out. Where we talk about this doctrine that is such a heated debate amongst believers. Election, predestination, being chosen. But I wanna, what I want you to see here, and it's the same in Ephesians, is that when Paul talks about it here, being set apart before birth, right? What is, what is the source of consternation and heated debate amongst Christians is a source of joy and worship for the Apostle Paul. In fact, in Ephesians 1, when he talks about it, he gets to the end of a 202-word sentence that includes chosen before the foundation of the world in Christ, predestined. He gets to the end of that sentence, and he erupts in worship. He says to the praise of his glory. 
Now, why? Because it affirms that salvation is completely and utterly of grace. That if God sets his love upon you before you were born, then there's no way that he can give you salvation in response to something you've done. You weren't even born. You couldn't perform. You couldn't do all the right things that he would respond to and say, you've been good enough. You've obeyed, therefore I'll accept you. Therefore I'll give you salvation. The beauty of this is that it is, it is grace alone that you're saved. If you're in Christ, God has set his love upon you before you were even born. That's the security that you have. The gospel's not what you do to get God. It's what God has done to get you. And this is what sets it apart from every other world religion. Every other world religion is some variant of do this, do that, and you will get to God. It's every other world religion falls in that latter human paradigm. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the complete opposite. It says, you don't do anything to get to God. God has done everything to get to you in his son Jesus through his death and resurrection. Just take in for a moment what verse 16 says. Look at it. God was pleased to reveal his son to me. Now, do you know when God revealed Jesus to Paul? You realize what he was doing? He was on the road to Damascus. He was on the road to Damascus to go arrest Christians, bring them back to Jerusalem, throw them in prison. He was attempting to destroy God's church. He was breathing out murderous threats. And that is when it says here that God was pleased to reveal Jesus Christ to Paul. How many of you are pleased to give a gift to an enemy who's gossiping against you and attacking you and slandering you. And yet what we read here is that God was pleased to reveal Christ to Paul. Why? Because God's love for Paul and God's love for you is not attached to what you do. God had set, part, uh, set Paul apart before birth. And at that moment in time, when he was absolutely persecuting the church, trying to destroy God's church, God revealed Jesus Christ to him. If God set his love upon you before you were born, which means that his love for you is not dependent on how you perform, then why now do you live as though God's love for you is dependent or contingent upon how you perform? You see the beauty of how this sets you free. The gospel of free grace does not tell you what to do to earn God's favor. It announces that God's already pleased with you through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is already pleased with you through the death and resurrection of his son if you're in Christ. And here's the staggering thought. The love that God the Father has for his son Jesus is the same love that he has for you. What sets the gospel of Jesus Christ apart is Christ alone and grace alone. Finally, the glory of God alone. When you embrace Christ alone, when you embrace grace alone, it liberates you from seeking your own glory through the approval of others. It's liberating. 
Look how Paul describes it in verse 10. He says, for I am now, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Apparently, what we see here is that Paul was being accused of being a people pleaser. And his opponents would point out, hey, you circumcised Timothy in Galatia, but you didn't circumcise Titus. Titus, And then what he says to the Corinthians, I've become all things to all people. All this, they go, Paul, you're a people pleaser, you're inconsistent. The reality is the decisions Paul made, whether to circumcise Timothy or not circumcise Titus, was all about advancing the gospel. It was all about advancing the gospel and the glory of God. It wasn't about the glory of Paul. Paul was actually, in his former life in Judaism, he was a people pleaser. He had been liberated from that, and the letter to the Galatians is one piece of evidence that says that. It's one of the most confrontational letters you're going to read. Paul doesn't seem to care too much what they think of him. He cares that they're getting the gospel and not losing it, right? The other evidence that Paul has been liberated from his people-pleasing is what he did after his conversion. Look what happens at the end of verse 16 and into 17. It says he didn't consult with anyone. He didn't even go up to Jerusalem where the apostles were at. Why? Well, his opponents were coming from the mother church in Jerusalem, and they basically were functionally saying the only true gospel comes out of Jerusalem. And so Paul went to Arabia, says, which included Damascus, and we learn in 2 Corinthians 11 that that was there in that region where they were trying to kill Paul for him preaching the gospel of free grace. They were trying to arrest him. They were trying to kill him. So what we see is that Paul was so liberated from people-pleasing that he was willing to die for the gospel. He was willing to die for preaching the gospel. He had been liberated. Religions that human beings invent always end up in glorifying human beings. Let me say that again. Religions that are man-made, religions that are invented by human beings always end up glorifying human beings. That's why Paul spends so much time in this section saying, I did, this gospel I'm preaching did not come from a man. It's not man's gospel. I received it directly from Jesus Christ. Why is he going to such lengths with it? Because if it's a man-made religion, it will end up glorifying a human being and not God. And Paul is bent on the true gospel and the glory of God alone and not the glory of man. When I say religions that human beings invent, invent always end up glorifying human beings, the reason is because those kind of man-made religions always have some law to keep. There's always some teaching to follow, some ritual to perform, some penance to endure, some state of consciousness to achieve, something that will bring about salvation. I did this, I did that. And you'll notice Paul, in verses 13 to 14, the shift from that to 15. In 13 and 14, he's, it's I, 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 right? It's I persecuted the church. I was advancing. I was zealous. But then he gets to verse 15, and it completely changes. God set me apart. God called me. God was pleased to reveal his son. The gospel of grace produces this beautiful self forgetfulness. 
this beautiful self-forgetfulness that liberates you from seeking your own glory through the approval of others to seeking the glory of God. And it also produces this radical humility because when you understand that salvation is purely by grace, then you understand that you can take no credit for it. There's not a bit of credit that you can take for your salvation. That all the glory goes to God for his transformation and change in your life. There's no glory to self. In fact, look at verse 23. It says, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. You see, people didn't see this change in Paul and say, hey, Paul, you have done an amazing job cleaning up your life. Or people didn't see the change in Paul and say, Paul, how in the world did you reverse your will like that? Just phenomenal, Paul. No, they saw Paul's life and said, this can only be by the power of God and only for the glory of God. Tom Papania was a man who went from mafia to ministry. His grandfather was a criminal who took organized crime from Sicily and brought it to America. Papania describes when he was 10 years old and receiving what was one of many beatings from his father, at 10 years old, he vowed, I will never shed a tear again in my entire life. And he went on to become a thief, an extortionist, a murderer. Eventually, he became the number two man in the New York Mafia. Says hardened criminals would meet him and, and they'd look into his eyes and even criminals would look into his eyes and just see hardened death in this man. Then God began to speak to him. But as God began to speak, he, he refused to listen. He refused to, um, to be under God's power. He refused to be controlled by God. But yet he was convinced that his life was so bad, so full of sin, that he was gonna get killed at some point for his sin. But to beat God out, to not be under God's control, he was gonna kill himself before God could kill him. That's where he had gotten. Put a gun to his head, telephone rang, and on the other line was a man who had invited him to church before. So he decided to go to church with him. He went to church, and after the service, the pastor met him at the back door. And he said this, I have something to say to you, but I don't want to offend you. The eyes are the windows of the soul. When you first came in here, I looked into your eyes and all I could see was a little boy crying, wanting to be loved. And he said that that pastor uncovered Papania's most painful secret. And because he didn't want to show weakness or let anybody know he was weak, he went back to the church that evening planning on murdering the pastor. And he got there and he couldn't follow through with it. And so he and the pastor start talking. And the pastor said to him, you need Jesus. 
Papania's response was he laughed. He said, Pastor, if these people in this church found out who I was, they'd throw both of us out of here. I'm probably the biggest sinner you'll ever see if you live to be a million years old. These people here don't want me. I'm a sinner. And then to this pastor, he began recounting all of his crimes because he wanted to get him off his back. And, and he wanted to convince him he was so bad that God was about to kill him. And as he recounted these crimes, it turned into a confession. And before long, he was on his knees. He was kneeling on his knees on the ground with 30 years of tears streaming down his cheeks as his heart was opened to the grace of Jesus Christ. And Tom Papania went on to be a prison evangelist and went on to preach the gospel to those who were in chains. I don't know where you're at this morning, but I can tell you this. You have not outsinned God's grace. You have not outsinned God's grace. And you may say, wait a minute. I've lived a life cursing God because of the hand that I think he's dealt me. I've lived a life angry at God. I've lived a life wanting nothing to do with him. And I don't know why I'm sitting in this church this morning. Certainly, there is no way there is room in God's heart for me and what I have done to him. And I would remind you of the Apostle Paul's testimony. He was breathing out murderous threats, attempting to destroy the church of God. And at that moment, God was pleased to reveal his son Jesus Christ to him. And if you're here this morning and you feel like you've outsinned God in his grace and that there's no room for you, here's God's response to that thought in your heart. In his love for you, he says to you, I am pleased to reveal my son Jesus Christ to you. What sets the gospel apart is that it is Christ alone, by grace alone, for the glory of God alone, from a God who is loving. Sum that all up, and the gospel is the power to change your life, to transform you. If you will trust his son, Jesus Christ, that he is revealing to you now, Let's pray. Father, would you forgive us? Would you forgive us for the ways we have distorted your gospel? Would you forgive us for the ways that we have added to your gospel? Would you forgive us for the ways we've turned your gospel into works righteousness? And would you, by your Spirit, 
Help us to receive the true gospel of Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, for the glory of God alone. Oh, Father, if there's people in this room who feel like they have out you, that there's just no room in your kingdom for them because of what they've done, would you convince them that they can't out your grace, that you are pleased in this moment to reveal to them your son, Jesus Christ, who died for them and who raised for them? And would you draw them to yourself? Whereas we read the story of Tom Papania, that, that deep, painful secret, a little boy just crying, wanting to be loved, a hardened mafia man that deep down just wanted to be loved. Would you draw us to yourself where we receive that love that our hearts have always been longing for and yet that we look to get satisfied in things in this world? Oh, Father, would you liberate us to the truths of your gospel that by grace alone we are liberated from self-seeking and self-glory to be about glorifying you and and experiencing this beautiful self-forgetfulness. As we continue to worship, as we sing, would your spirit inhabit our hearts and the words that we're singing, would they come from a heart that is being made alive? We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.